This episode of the Casting Shadows podcast, from Season 3, this is Episode 10, the topic is music, and music in the context of preparation for improvisation in role-playing games. The primary focus of this particular episode will be looking at this from a game master's perspective, but there will be lots of things which apply just as well to playing your character in a campaign. Well, this episode is one which has been started and stopped many times in the past, but recently got some inspiration and some support. Inspiration from Carl Rodriguez, the geomologist, talking about music and his his uh, recent thoughts on music in playing, and Joe Richter from the Hindsightless podcast. So let's let Joe explain in his own words what he's interested in. Hey, Anthony, Joe here, first time caller. Uh, so this is kind of a meta call, but I am calling your show in response to Carl Rodriguez's response to a message you left on his show, The Geomologist Presents. So cool. We all caught up. <laughs> you were talking about how you had run a few games or ran games that were very influenced by the Queen's Ride concept album Operation Mindcrime. And Carl mentioned that it would be cool to hear you talk about some of those war stories and hear how you actually did it. I second that opinion, man. I think it'd be really cool to hear because I just I'd never listened to Mind Crime before. You know, obviously I'd heard of Queen's Reich, but I was never really into him back then. But I started listening to Mind Crime and it's pretty awesome. I would also love to hear how those games you ran went. Anyway, man, take it easy and peace out. So I don't know if this episode will really deliver on the things that Joe or Carl might be interested in hearing, but I hope that something in here will be of interest or of use to whoever takes the time to listen to it. So let's get into it. Music and RPGs. Preparation for Improvisation. I first became interested in music as it relates to playing role-playing games in the late 80s when I discovered Call of Cthulhu. There, I was thinking about using it as a prop. The game itself, Call of Cthulhu, kind of inspires you or pushes you or prepares you for using lots of different physical props, letters and clues and matchboxes and all sorts of things in support of making that investigative experience more engaging. And as a prop, I wanted to be able to add music which helped to support what period we were playing in. So it didn't feel like we were playing in the 80s in the 1920s, just giving lip service to the 1920s. I wanted it to sound like the 20s, but I didn't want to use sound effects and I didn't want to use pictures. I wanted to use, in a sense, incidental music. Of course, in the 80s, that was nowhere near as easy as it has become today. It's become a lot easier to search for and find music organized by a whole variety of different principles, which weren't as easily available then. But fortunately for me, in those days, I was working for a radio station. So being able to track down music by type 
was not as bad as it could have been in, in another situation. So, whenever investigators in the jazz era entered into some kind of smoky bar, I could supply them with not the exact right kind of audio experience that their characters would be having, because what I was playing was a recording of recorded music. But, in a sense, it did its job. It transported and supported the atmosphere that we were going for. However, as time went on, I became less satisfied with this technique because if I was using the very low-fidelity recordings we have of music from this period, it sounds like a recording. And if I used it in the wrong context, i.e. if I used it to represent live music that the characters were hearing, then I felt as the game master that I had introduced a bad note. I had introduced a poorly made prop. And so this began to bother me. Once the 90s rolled around, well, then World of Darkness became as common in play as Call of Cthulhu for me, and maybe more common in some years than others. And I was engaged in a pretty lengthy chronicle, which lasted for six years, right up to the point where I moved to Korea. And it continued long distance for a while and in different formats. But during that period of time, music was a fundamental part of setting the atmosphere before play, during play, and after play. Not to get too deeply into this part, there is one primary chronicle which ran for the full six years, and from it sprang many other smaller chronicles, each one having its own starting music, just like a television show, and ending music. And maybe during the course of play, there would be music to emphasize specific key events or specific locations, walking into a particular bar or haunt or place of business that the characters were very familiar with was often accompanied by an audio soundtrack, an audio cue, same music for each location to get people in the mood. The intro music, in every sense of the word, really was a ritual. It signaled the transition from not playing the game to playing the game. By the time the song had finished, we were ready to be in the world of darkness. However, this also meant that I'm using modern music from the very years that we are living in, the very years that we are playing in. The songs had lyrics. They are often songs that people in the group knew and loved. And of course, you know what happens when songs that you like come on. You become engaged with that music. Some people sing, or some people want to move around, or some people are transported out of the game world and into whatever particular memory they associate with that song that they like. This never really became a problem for us, but 
I have encountered it as a problem in other groups that I've played with, and I've encountered, you know, out there on the internet, other people complaining about this effect, right? That something that is introduced to be a part of the atmosphere of play instead works against the atmosphere of play. So, as time went on, as the different games I was playing and my different uses of music during play continued, I began to have an evolving opinion about it, and I became less and less interested in or willing to play music during play unless there is a very specific reason for it. But all through this period, I was using music more and more as a part of preparation. You see, another factor which was contributing to how I was learning to prepare for play was the fact that I was very, very busy. Now, in those days, I had a couple of part-time jobs and was struggling with my own business. But the thing that really kept me busy was that we had games, and sometimes multiple games, every day of the week. So preparation was, by necessity, compressed and fit into whatever available time could be made for it. And so a more traditional form of preparation, like taking notes or sitting down someplace quiet and thinking through the situation, creating a lot of, of NPCs or agendas or relationship maps or things like that on paper, that was difficult I had that much time, but I didn't have that much time in a discrete unit where I could sit down at a desk and do something like that. So by necessity, this was preparation I needed to be able to do while driving, while working, while you know commuting, that kind of thing. Music made it all easier. I was getting in the habit of doing my preparation as through the lens of character. I was imagining what the non-player characters' reactions would be like to the personalities that were developing for the player characters in play. How will they react right, when the characters behave like the characters behave? What will they be trying to do to improve their situation in the environment, this kind of thing. So I'm imagining play. I'm imagining character actions, interactions, and reactions. And I'm imagining how all of that might fit together if the player characters were absent so that when play actually came around, I didn't have to consider what a reaction might be. I could just leap in and improvise a reaction based on all this experience I had imagining those non-player characters in a variety of different situations. But how do you keep all of those characters straight? How do you keep them clear in your mind? How do you make them distinct? This is where music helped. Because music became my link, my notepad, to who these characters were. Characters had theme songs, 
Factions had theme songs, different periods of play where things were particularly bleak or where things were particularly positive had thematic music to go along with it. It was an underpinning. It was a way to quickly generate an emotional and intellectual response to the idea. It was a way to instantly remember who this person was. And sometimes what they were doing and why they were doing it. I would make collections of music in order to help shape the way a campaign was feeling, the way an NPC made me feel, the way I wanted an NPC to make others feel. I didn't play this music during the game. I played it during my preparation. And in a very real sense, it became solid building blocks for personality and for actions in-game when the game rolled around. So let's look at a quick example of that. I don't know how many of my listeners might be familiar with Tom Waits, but even though I've primarily been a metalhead through most of my adult life, I have a special place of respect in my heart for Tom Waits. So if I could explain all this using three examples from Tom Waits' catalog. I could take an example from the album Bone Machine from the 90s. Um, I Don't Want to Grow Up. I could take that song. It's a whimsical song, kind of a silly song, and you know it's, it's fun to listen to, uh, that kind of thing. But if I take that as song one of a playlist, I Don't Want to Grow Up, and there are some interesting turns of phrase inside the lyrics of that very silly kind of poppy kind of strange sounding song. And they can become the seeds of identity for a character that is going to change over time in play, right? If they're allowed to survive that long. So I Don't Want to Grow Up becomes song one. And then also from that same album, I could take song number two, The Earth Died Screaming. Another cool song, much cooler song, much more in, you know, my style of music than I Don't Want to Grow Up. But taken together, as if they're part of the inner life of one NPC, it takes on a whole new meaning. And then from the album Mule Variations, I might take, I think it was Mule Variations. It might not be Mule Variations. Don't quote me on that. I could take the song Murder in the Red Barn. And now we have an idea of where we meet this NPC in play. I don't like to prepare arcs of story like is necessary in television or in film. I don't like to make arcs of character for things that are going to happen after play starts. This is all preparation for who this character is for when I introduce them into play. So I can think years ago, their starting point was I don't want to grow up and the particular dramas of human life that that song indicates about the singer.
and then that matures into the earth died screaming and further sickens into murder in the red barn. Or instead of murder in the red barn, I might have it transition into black wings or what's he building? <laughs> all from Tom Waits, all giving the music a particular voice, the internal dialogue of an NPC, so that the songs are talking to me, in a sense, about the character. So I can be driving around, or I can be washing the dishes, I can be walking the dogs, whatever it is. I can be doing something else, I can be getting something else done, but the music is helping me prepare. It's putting me in a position where I'm thinking about who these characters really are on a fundamental level, so that in a moment where I'm dealt with the surprises that I want from actual play, I can respond to them on an improvisational footing from all of this pre-paration. And as I mentioned earlier, this kind of preparation could be set up for thinking about your campaign world or thinking about the outcome of a turn of events, right? Or a setup for a major turn of events or whatever else. The people, the places, the things, the moods of your setting can all be given voice in playlists from songs that really have no seeming relevance to each other except for the context that your setting provides for them and that kind of alchemy of interaction inside your imagination while you're thinking about how you want to talk about it, how you want to describe it, how you want to portray it. Well, it all crystallizes, materializes in play through improvisation. Sometimes the recording industry makes this a lot easier for us, and they give us something like the concept album, or they deliver unto us bands who keep returning back to the same themes or the same subject matter time and again. Bands like Blue Oyster Cult and their references to Elric or the Eternal Champion or things along those lines, right? Or, you know, Hawkwind or so on and so forth. But the album Operation Mindcrime stands out as a huge example of, of an artistic work which has grabbed the minds of so many people and got them talking, made them create characters, made them create situations, made them create plots, uh, added layers over top of existing you know, political structures in, in their cities, and just... It was monstrously influential and inspirational. Back when we were playing Shadowrun 2nd Edition, there were a number of Game Masters I had the pleasure of playing with who had, in one way or another, taken elements from Mindcrime and put them in play. Sometimes it was something as simple as meeting characters from the album, 
with or without their original names. And it's kind of like an Easter egg, being able to recognize these personality types from the album. But what satisfied me more was being in situations or creating the situations myself for my own games that uh, were inspired by the, the struggles, the emotions, the relationships identified in the concept album, but recasting all of it in the context of the game that we are playing and casting our characters, therefore, in the primary roles rather than as witnesses of what is going on in Mindcrime. To give the players the opportunity to stand where the protagonist stands in Mindcrime rather than being collateral damage or simply a witness. Now, of course, that's easier in some games than others, and sometimes the context has to change drastically. So, for example, using it in Wraith, an initial decision needed to be made. If I'm going to draw on this beautiful idea, this, this source of inspiration, do I want to be do I want it to be something that the Wraith characters are witnessing through the shroud as they peer from the lands of the dead into the land of the living? Do they want to see this playing out and feel helpless and hopeless and separated from it, but wanting to be able to help, wanting to be able to spare the people who are on a collision course with a very dark destiny? Or do I want this to be something that they interact with because it's happening directly to them in the Shadowlands. Or perhaps more satisfyingly, do I want to have it be both at the same time? The way the Worlds of Darkness games were set up, it made it pretty easy to introduce the jealousies and the political struggles and squabbles that underlie mind crime made it very easy to make them a significant part of play. Perhaps most obviously in Vampire, but also really strongly in Mage. So to give an example, to give a war story, let's draw from Mage, mostly because it's an easier uh, chronicle for me to explain than the others. So in Mind Crime, there are a number of themes that we might latch onto. We could pick Primarily the political situation, the struggle, uh, the class struggle represented in, in the story. Or what I chose to look at when using it for Mage was to look at the theme of betrayal. Everything that's brought up has, in a sense, a connection to the song The Needle Lies. Right? There is you know, a peace, there is a, a release, there is a sense of safety in the character's addiction, right? They rely on their addiction in order to feel good. Everything else feels bad, but this is the vehicle through which they are manipulated. He has his love connection to Mary, but Mary isn't exactly what she seems. There is the chance to be something, to be someone, to finally realize his true potential through Dr. X, but of course, Dr. X is very much a villain. 
and there's the society that has cast them out and alternately holds in its hands the ability to further hurt or try to heal our protagonists. So there's a lot of opportunity for dual nature. There's a lot of opportunity for betrayal. And it was that that I latched onto because it seems to connect so well with Mage. Mage the Awakening. Sorry, not the Awakening. Mage the Ascension. So the setup for the Chronicle that I was running was of a group of what we call orphan mages. They were specifically, but not mm, so much in terms of their personality, the tradition called the Hollow Ones. Right? So they they practiced magic in kind of a, an eclectic way. They were different ages. They were loosely held together. They had poor relationships with society. They were cast out on, on many levels. And the backdrop for these characters was uh, an orphanage and a series of halfway houses. And there were ties to other supernatural creatures as well. Um, some that they felt they could trust, and some that they felt uh, were trying to manipulate them, and some that they, they out and out feared. And it was very much a chronicle about finding your voice and being able to be a proactive force in the community. Not something like fighting the Ascension War or uh, going up against the technocracy, but in making your community safe. Because that is something that the characters didn't have. Right? When they were growing up, they were not safe. They were not protected. They were victims. So how does the victim stop being the victim and instead become the protector and not a new perpetrator of violence and darkness. So, Mindcrime supports and fits into that perfectly. Who can they trust among the community leaders with their bright ideas and their calls for help, their plans for, you know, gentrifying the, let's call them slums, and that kind of thing. Who do they trust? Who's actually telling the truth? Who's being manipulated by a dark force? Who's being motivated by money alone? Who's got pretty grim skeletons in their closet? Right? And perhaps the greatest temptation is the betrayal of self. Who among them is going to rise up with a vision for how things should be and begin through their power to make that happen? and in so doing, become the victimizer. Now, as I said earlier, I'm engaged in preparation for improvisation. So unlike the album, which has its beginning, middle, and end, and unlike, well, unlike the album, which has its, its dramatic arc, I planned for no dramatic arc. What I planned was for an initial situation, right? The mood given by mind crime was the mood I wanted to establish early on in play once we knew who these characters were. And like I said earlier, I wanted to provide them with the opportunity to be like protagonists in mind crime rather than witnesses to it or uh, existing near it while it's going on. So I created 
NPCs who might become like Dr. X, who might become like Mary. But the players also created characters who might be our protagonist, who might be Mary, who might be Dr. X. And I wanted any of these possibilities to be possible. So, our protagonist has numerous failings. Well, our player characters likewise had numerous failings. They struggled to make ends meet. Some of their magic, the players found it interesting to think that this could be tied to different uh, vices or less than uh, socially acceptable behavior. So just through the normal course of play, they were constantly risking running into trouble, like the protagonist of Mindcrime, and winding up in the hands of the authorities, being questioned for things that they had done. They also became vulnerable to manipulation from the outside. Oh, this is how you're trying to seek power? Well, you're on the right track, but you need to go a little bit farther, and I can help you. In any situation where you're relying on betrayal to be a theme for play, well, then you're going to have to hang out with his best friend, Temptation. So I needed to focus on creating interesting temptations. And I decided to keep that theme of betrayal in mind when I started to figure out inspirations for those temptations, such as these characters feel tied to and responsible for these halfway houses of troubled kids, right? So helping the kids and being able to make their situations better is a driving force, right? Not just protecting them from, you know, vampires or helping them evade uh, capture if they began to manifest as werewolf kinfolk. Not just things like that, but simpler stuff. Bullies at school, problems with drugs and alcohol abuse, and so on. In a very real sense, the dice became a way for us to tell how any given action might play out in the future, how any well-intentioned action might instead have, well, darkness within it. So, the Chronicle was set up to have layers of movers and shakers. There were supernatural beings who might be helpful or harmful, who provided the means for temptation or betrayal. Things like the a more experienced mage from a different tradition who is trying to lure them from being hollow ones and into this other, older, more established tradition, right? To give up their way of understanding, their way of ascending, and adopt a new worldview. Likewise, on a mundane level, I had political movers and shakers, any one of whom might be honest and who might be moving toward corruption because of the circumstances surrounding the setting. And then, as always, there were the characters themselves. So over the course of play, the, the orphanage remained safe, although 
at the end of the Chronicle, it had to be relocated to an entirely different city, which sparked the beginning of a new campaign, which I started here and ran for a little while. But during the Chronicle, the original Chronicle, a variety of other young mages, like our player characters, tried to wage more overt war against the status quo than our characters were comfortable with. Whatever, whatever moves, magical or otherwise, the player characters move made, these NPC characters would take a bigger risk, would go a little bit farther. Even going to the point of being willing to exercise mind control in crowd situations. It's kind of funny to look back on it now and think of the dystopian version of our hometown that I had created in the 90s seems really, really tame based on the real world that we live in now and the sorts of things that have happened. But the idea was that there were people who wanted to change who was on top. Some of these people were on the bottom and thinking about other people who were on the bottom and the middle and wanting things to be more fair for everybody. But others who just wanted to exchange who was on top with who was on the bottom. <laughs> right? We had different layers of motivations. And so the pieces put in place at the beginning of the Chronicle were all designed to have agendas which should encroach on the ideas and perspectives of other groups, right? So NPC groups were going, or should likely, come to opposition with other NPC groups in play. And somewhere in there, the perspectives and what's important to the player characters will be impacted. And that's exactly what happened. It ended up making them feel like there was nowhere they could go. There was no one that they could trust. They had to rely on themselves. They had to make changes themselves, which means it gave them the choice of refusing to be a tool. They didn't align with a stronger faction, right? They didn't become like the protagonist in mind crime and, be, and become a tool in order to at least feel good about themselves, to feel safe, to feel protected, to get everything that they needed. And, and you know, maybe if they were lucky to be able to have a little bit of love, they didn't stay children. Instead, they recognized that they needed to become more powerful. They needed to become able to meet force with force to shift the status quo in a way that it would allow what was important to them to survive and thrive. So they wound up going the route of Dr. X. Except in this particular iteration of the idea in play, I saw Dr. X himself as a tool of higher powers, let's say, right? The movers and shakers behind the scenes 
So, in a sense, Dr. X is exactly like the protagonist of Mindcrime. No different, just in a different time of life and on a different social plane. <laughs> so, again, this brings it back full circle. As these characters try to become more powerful, as they try to learn to use force to meet the force, all the different types of force, the social force, the peer force, the economic force, and the supernatural force that's being you know, exerted against them, as they learn to resist that, as they learn to strike out against it, as they learn to become their own version of Dr. X, is something else, someone else, somewhere else, pulling their strings? That was a question we never got to answer. But anyway, through all of this, Mind Crime, the actual album, was something that the characters might choose to listen to, right? That might pop up in play because events of play gave off a similar feel. And it was something I was listening to constantly to keep myself on an edge where the choices I would make as the result of a die roll, the choices I would make as one of the NPCs, the choices I would make as one of the groups of NPCs, one of the factions involved, they would be influenced and inspired by that mood, that darkness, that bleakness, the image painted of that kind of world, which was just our world, maybe one small step to the side, and maybe a smaller step than I would have imagined in the 90s. That's one example of how mind crime has been involved in play. However, there are other and easier ways to use music in this way. And sometimes they cross over between music that you play outside of the game to music you play inside of the game. So one of the games that I have grown very fond of over the years of living over here is one by Grimalkin Design Studio. It's called Broken Rooms, a role-playing game of parallel worlds. And this is the, you know, the easiest example to use of this, but I also like using this idea with the Mithras-powered game by the design mechanism. It's a licensed property called Luther Arkwright role-playing across the parallels. Again, these have a similar theme of there being a multiverse or multiple dimensions of reality where the Earth is either exactly the same when you get there, but some, some aspect of history is different, or things can be even more different than that. So the notion is that it's the world that you know, but with some variation. And so playlists of cover songs take on a whole new life in this context. So as the characters jump from one layer of reality to the next, you can prepare a playlist, right? Which you can actually have playing in the background, where you edit it together, where they're in one scene, maybe listening to the radio, or they're in a nightclub, or something like this, and the song is playing. And as you describe the shift, you've got the song playing in the background, and you're describing them in whatever uh, the means that the game provides for shifting from one reality to another reality. As that's being described by you, the song transitions 
to a new artist in a new style, right? As if it's the original on that variation of reality, right? So I've had a habit over the years of collecting songs in different genres. So I'll get a a heavy metal version of a pop song or a psychobilly version of a pop song or a punk version of a pop song. And you can use this as an actual prop, but you can also use it, as I was describing before, as preparation for improvisation. You can listen to the cover version only and how it's different, right? To help you connect on a, on a more subconscious level to the things that are different about this version or this layer or this aspect of the multiverse compared to whatever you're considering as the baseline, right? There are a million cover versions of Paint It Black, for example, and each one carries an aspect of the original within it, but they have different tempos, they have different instrumentation, they certainly have different voices, and some of them carry a darker feel or a brighter feel or a shallower feel or a deeper feel. They have something about them which you can use as a hook for making this dimension feel different than the previous one. So you can use this technique explicitly, like I just described, such as it's playing on the radio. The characters can hear it in, you know, on this layer of reality. And then when they transition, at some point in play, they hear it somewhere else and they recognize that it's not a cover song. This is the original song from this universe. But you can also use it in a more meta sense, right? You can play it before the session starts and, you know, people ask you, you know, who it is or, or whatever, and you can talk about the song as a variation of the original song and then use that later, you know, draw on that in a more subliminal sense later in play to help bring out aspects of, of the new layer of reality that the characters are experiencing. So I've compiled some example playlists uh, on Spotify, and I'll put the links to that in the show notes. So I've got one called Dimensional Shamblings, which goes through a large number of variations of Red Right Hand. Um, I stumbled across that song originally when it was released on Songs in the Key of X, the soundtrack for The X-Files, and that led me into discovering Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which is uh, nice and satisfying. But now since it's appeared on Peaky Blinders, the song has taken on new life, and there's even more uh, covers and variations on it than you might believe. And so this makes it an ideal song for a multiverse of possibilities. So I had it in mind to use for a Luther Arkwright campaign. But it could just as easily be used more explicitly, more expressly for something else. It could be used for broken rooms like I was talking about before. It could be used in Call of Cthulhu and, uh, you know, inspired down through the ages. Uh, if you're a Cure fan, uh, you might be interested in looking at all the different covers that are available of a forest. <laughs> it's, it's kind of surprising just how many there are and just how many different genres of music are involved. And so you could have that song 
either in an explicit sense or in a more meta-level sense, following the characters and the players around through your campaign if they were traveling between the Old West and the far future, between a very bleak kind of industrial hellscape or, you know, something closer to the real world. You could keep drawing on this. You can find it in kind of ancient Celtic vocalizations and you can find it with a tinny western piano and on and on and on it goes. It's inspiration and it feeds the ability to prepare to improvise later on. So I hope uh, <laughs> I hope this has been helpful. The playlists I was mentioning include one playlist that has uh, a whole large number of versions of Red Right Hand uh, and there's some for Delta Green, two different Delta Green ideas. It's the three-song or more structure I was talking about for inspiring your perception of a non-player character. You want to be able to capture uh, quickly, convincingly, and consistently in play without needing to you know dig their sheet out and and check it over for you know what are their mental conditions and, and you know, what are their skills. If you want to be able to, to connect strongly to the feel of that character, then I like this method. So I've got two examples of that up there, and I leave it up to you to figure out um, what those songs are suggesting about an NPC. They are in a specific order to, to guide through the earlier point of the character's life up to the point where they are going to enter play. So if you have any questions about this long kind of information dump style uh, post, I welcome them. Please leave a message through in the ways that you can leave a message or contact me through uh, the other means of making contact, which are in the show notes. All right. So for those of you who expressed interest in this idea, thanks for doing so. I may do more uh, about this topic later on, but this is all the time I have available right now, and maybe it was more time than you had, <laughs> and maybe less specific than you wanted, but uh, here's where we stand at the end of the episode. So anyway, until the next time, you've been listening to the Casting Shadows podcast, which is an extension of the Casting Shadows blog, found at castingshadowsblog.com, and both of which are satellites of our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash RuneSlayer. Okay, until the next time, take care.